Thank you for tuning in to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. My guest, Ken Vance, has played many roles in Milledgeville and in the state of Georgia. But in his new book, Wearing Johnny's Shirt, Vance shares a part of his persona that many people may have never heard before. The observer of life and the poet who shares what he sees with the world. Tonight, poet Ken Vance joins me to talk about and breathe life into the people, places, and experiences that fill his new book, Wearing Johnny's Shirt. Ken Vance, I want to welcome you to Millageville Matters. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, man. All right, well, your new poetry collection, Wearing Johnny's Shirt, has been in the works for quite a while now. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I just want to ask you to start off with, how does it feel to have it published in your poetry finding its audience it's overwhelming of the response that i've gotten so far and i i just write it's my therapy if you will and uh to have folks appreciate it all these years there there are poems in this book that are 35 years old there are some in this book that are three months old but it's 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 overwhelming and and humbling real humbling when you talk about looking back over your work in this endeavor, how did you know when you were ready to publish? Wow. Uh, I know the trendy thing is to say bucket list and all this kind of stuff. But I've had some people that have read my stuff and said, why haven't you done a book yet? And that kind of plants a, a seed in, in pretty fertile ground when you're a writer. And so I started sending it out, and yeah, I got rejection slips and first one thing and another. And then within 10 days, I got two acceptances, one from New York and one from a publisher in Atlanta. And I took the one in Atlanta because that's a little closer to home. And was the book done at that time, or was there still pieces to be put in place? There, it, was, it was probably 95% done. I went back and looked at every poem that I had submitted and I did some editing on probably about 70% of them because, you know, you, you kind of get a chance when you're publishing to have a do-over. And I did a do-over on, on about 70% of them. But it's minor changes, like a word here, uh, a punctuation there, mostly making verb tenses, make sure everything lines up, uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's mostly editing at that point. Well, and I ask you this, when you make it to the second edition of wearing Johnny's shirt, uh, will you still be editing and still be finishing those poems? You you do it every day. You do it every time you sit down to write. You look at some things that you've written and you say, damn, I probably need to change that. And, and, uh, And you do. And then you read it out loud and and you play it off of what you had as opposed to where you want to go. And really, you've got to finalize your direction at that point. Well, I wanted to uh, take it back, uh, maybe 35 years ago, uh, probably longer than that um, from looking at the foreword <laughs> in the opening essay. Can you remember that first time that a poet, a poem, or maybe just poetry uh, took hold of you? Oh, yes. I was at, I was at Rabin Gap Nakuchi School up in northeast Georgia in Rabin County. And Lord forgive me, but I forget the teacher's name. And we had a little poetry section. And I read this poem by James Dickey called Falling. And it's about somebody falling out of an airplane. 
And I said, my gosh, this is, you know, think about that time between coming out the door or getting sucked out the window, if you will, and all the way to 33,000 feet to the ground. And I said, my gosh, this is overwhelming. And I said, I want to try to start scribbling a little bit. And uh, like I say in the introduction, you know, yeah, you know, people see you writing, you know, they think you're a deep thinker. No, that's just your way of coming to terms with things. And if it impressed the girls when I was in high school, that was probably a, a positive too. So, well, I have to so ask, did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I got to date the president's niece, which is pretty good. And uh, uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. But uh, no, uh, yeah. And then, and then I went to Young Harris College and, and met Betty Sellers, who ultimately became the poet laureate of Georgia under Governor Miller. And, and she really put my butt in gear as far as reading and writing. And, and the writing I did then, the can-kicking kids and the things we did to see the hot, wet dawn, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's just the music of it. And then as I moved forward, you know, I did a little stuff there. And, and uh, none of those poems, thankfully, are in this book. But, but uh, uh, then I came to Georgia College and met Sarah Gordon. And that was a, writing-wise, that was a life-changing event and probably in several other ways as well. She, she's been one of my mentors for all these years. We don't agree on everything, but, Lord, she taught me how to think and put things together and find my voice. And I learned at that time that, that your voice is really what separates you from, from other writers. You know, every, every writer has his or her own voice. And I was trying to find mine, and then when I, I remember that poem, you know, it was wearing Johnny's shirt was the poem. She says, that's your voice. You found your voice. Now go. And and I've been trying to, to feed off of that, you know, and learn and do better over all these years. And I'm curious, how has poetry remained a part of your life um, as life goes in different directions? It, it's, it goes ups and it's downs. How has that stayed with you? It's always been my way of coming to terms with things. Life throws so many situations and choices at you, and you see things, and then you learn things, and kind of they don't add up. So you start writing them, and you try to come to terms and balance them through writing. At least that's what I do. And I call writing my coming to terms moment, you know, whether it's with a minor thing like a car crash. Uh, and that's not minor if you're involved in it, but seeing a car crash and the ramifications that surround that kind of thing. I think a line I use, you know, you know, don't stare too long. Don't stare too long at it or you might be next. You know, you might have your own car crash. And it's, it's in three words, it's coming to terms. It's the way I come to terms with things. Keeps me sane. Well, uh, on that note, I was wondering if we might actually hear some of this poetry. Oh, yeah. uh, you gave me the handle uh, right there, and um, I thought we'd start <laughs> off. Um, let's start off with Mercy, Good Buddy. Ooh, Mercy, Good Buddy is uh, uh, I had this idea about, you know, somebody going down the road, and, and, and I've really struggled lately with, with mercy and grace. You know, grace is something that the good Lord gives you, and, and mercy is something that you request. And, you know, back in, in those days, or, or ladies and all, you know, you had the CB radios and, and things like that, and, and, and folks would say, mercy, good buddy. And uh, 
I said, what happens when things go a little bit wrong and, and somebody's asking for mercy and it comes along? If you want me to read it out, I'll, I'll jump on in here now. Mercy, good buddy. 3.16 a.m., the picture's taken, the chalk line's drawn, post-mortem activity finished, canceled by Fords pulling Airstream trailers on interstate toward Phoenix. Certainly someone saw Virgil Simmons pull onto the safety lane to change his flat right front. With the back now straightened by a trust, his left leg stiff in a brace, growing on him, with him, since Dinang in 68. Virgil's been trained to fend for himself, summon help when the task requires. Mercy, good buddy. Two men with close-cropped hair are proud of their berets and out to prove it, loosen lug bolts, skin, and bone from Virgil's forehead and torso. Lying in a ditch with weeds like rice stalks, feeling his life run out, hearing trailers heading west to Phoenix. Mercy, good buddy. That was Mercy Good Buddy by my guest today, poet Ken Vance. He's here talking with me about Wearing Johnny's Shirt, his new book that was released, uh, I believe, just in December. Yes, sir. Now, I first made your acquaintance covering the Milledgeville City Council as a reporter for the Union Recorder. Uh, you served in that public capacity for 28 years, and I think uh, uh, many of our listeners may know you from the law, enforce uh, law enforcement service. Uh, and I was curious, um, when we last spoke about your time on city council, well, before today, um, you talked to me about the connection that literature has made to you for your ideals about governing in that capacity. Well, I, I, and, and I appreciate you asking that. And I go back to Hemingway. You know, I always said, you know, government is really about creating what Hemingway called a clean, well-lighted place. And there are a lot of ramifications that come from that. You know, you want a safe environment. You want, you want a, a, a healthy, a healthy lifestyle, a, a good place, and good schools to raise your kids and, and go forward and go to church on Sunday and eat fried chicken and those kind of things. And if your city is a clean, well-lighted place, then it stands to reason that those things have come together. It gives those people the environment to be who they. Absolutely. Are and want to be. Yes, 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 yes. As I think about poetry and your life in public service, I'm curious about the lessons that those two parts of your being have taught one another. Is there anything that the, the poetry taught you about service or that the service taught you about cool. poetry? Whoa. What poetry has taught me about service, and I think there's a country song somewhere I heard several years ago, public service you need to be humble and kind that's kind of it you know don't take yourself so seriously that you can't laugh at yourself but take what you do extremely seriously and when you're in an elected position you do those things that your constituents put you there for you're their conscience if you will and you've got to do the right thing even when it's kind of uncomfortable at times now, what has public service done for my writing is kind of solidified it and made me go back to what I talked about earlier, the Hemingway thing. 
you know, create a clean, well-lighted place. And poetry is poetry is 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 a little cleaner, if you will. You've got to put it together pretty quick. You don't have those pages like you do in fiction and prose to draw things out. You've got to be very specific about it. And and with local government, you've got to do things very quickly, very efficiently, and come to something that's good in a pretty short period of time so that your constituents will know that you're working for them. Wow, what a question. Well, and uh, this is me just conjecturing about it, but the people that you've met in your lines of work, I, I, I think of you on the road in your current position, uh, traveling to all those uh, small and large places a- across our state. Yep. Uh, do those people that you meet along the way make it into your work? Let me, let me tell you something. Writing, public service, whatever, it's a people business. Government is a people business. Law enforcement is a people business. Appreciate those people, even though you might not agree with everything they do. Do bad things happen to good people? Yes. Do good things happen to bad people? Yes. You know, a bad person wins the lottery sometime. Good for them. But but treat people in a way that you'd want to be treated if you were in their position, pure and simple. And that works for government. That works for law enforcement. That works for hell everybody. That brings me to a poem uh, that I I didn't put on the list that I wanted you to ask. Uh, But when we talk about people, and especially the people that you may find in your line of work that we, shall we say, the general population don't get to think about too often. Could you read Or It's Equivalent? Oh, wow. I was in a hospital several years ago, and I went by this room, and this guy was just convulsing. And I stopped and asked the nurse, is he all right? No, he's not all right. We've got to give him something to calm him down. Whoa. And that, that stuck with me. The person, and it couldn't help it. It's his body saying something. I didn't know what it was. But they had to give him something to get his body back in control so they could work on whatever the problem might be. So I, I, I wrote this poem, and I, I haven't read this poem in, 25 years. This this is an old one. See him, age 48, an explosion of arms, legs, his whole body wrestling short tantrums, tied down with wide belts, shot up with a needle full of calm down. He bows and exhales as if pins puncture each organ or some hunter is jumping a covey of quail in his lungs. He tears at himself like a dog with the red mange, clawing for death or its equivalent mercy. We all try to find those things that calm us down, that put us in positions where we can, again, come to terms with with whatever's going on with us. Actually, that's an older poem, but it's... uh, The the human condition is, is a frail an exciting thing all at one time. All of us ride down the roads or we sit and look at whatever, you know, the human experience. I, I, I'm, I'm big on the senses. I wish we would turn off the radio and roll down the windows sometime and just smell and think and ride and appreciate what is around us. Uh, the smell of honeysuckle on a dirt road in the spring, it doesn't get any better than that. And that's a rebirth, if you will. That's God saying it's 
It's spring. It's time to, to appreciate what I'm doing for you again or science or whatever. It, you, know, you put your own fill in the blank. Uh, it's God with me. But I wish we, I wish we would dial it back a little bit. You know, I learned in English the old head-heart conflict, you know, where technology gets ahead of our ability to deal with it. And I kind of think that's where we are now. We've got all this technology with cell phones and Instagram and what, fill in the blank again. That, that kind of thing, we have not caught up with it yet, and it's far outpacing our ability to deal with it. That's scary. Now, one of the things that has come up several times throughout the book that uh, stuck out to me was uh, referencing the hymn, Just As I Am. And uh, I, I very much appreciated seeing that so many times because I think that is the uh, one of the struggles we all have <laughs> is, is just as I am. Just as I am. Read Thoreau. Read Emerson. Read, read some of the folks like that. Read James Lee Burke. Read Walker Percy. Uh, James Dickey, Maxine Cumin, a uh, 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 poet that I'm, I'm very fond of. Re- read those people. It, and, and, but it all comes back to an old Baptist hymn. In the Baptist church in Sycamore, Georgia, Bethel Baptist Church on Highway 32, those Sundays when they played Just As I Am, somebody was coming to the front. They were going to get confess their sins and go up in that baptismal pool. You know, but just as I am without one plea, Lord, take me as I am, just as I am. And that's kind of me just, you know, I've got a pretty varied life. You know, I'm, I'm a law man, whatever, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just somebody going somewhere to happen, you know, and dealing with things every day. You know, it's like, it's like Walker Percy writes about the everydayness of things. Uh, John Updike writes about it. What goes on every day, but it's kind of cataclysmic emotionally. You know, it makes you make decisions. You know, it makes you decide whether or not to to stop and help that person beside the road or not. And that's just as I am. That's where you have to make that that human choice, that emotional choice. And see, you know, it kind of shows what your values are. In one of the poems that spoke particularly to me because it reflects things I think about in my own life is prayer. The idea that oh you have to have your own prayer. You say your prayer, and it, it, it's, it's for your prayer. you. Uh, I was wondering if you could read this prayer. I'm not sure it's it's your prayer. Maybe it is, but it meant something to me to read someone else's prayer, and I want to share that with our audience today. It's probably It's probably pretty close to my prayer, and I've never had it asked to me that way. Prayer. With head in hand, Lord, allow me to sift my sins and make smooth the knots of my past, like flour shaken and slung into a pan for kneading. Let me prop my feet on the cold floor mornings of adolescence, when heat was a dream I woke to and went through the day with, from radiator to Rachel. Forgive, Father, my nature to question the ticklish definitions of faith, when winding west on State 76, a Methodist daughter made suggestions not understood then, just as I am, all jokes aside. Hear this not just for me, but for others similarly inclined. Understand, please, those suffering powerless blood, not death-ready, but narrow as light poles, 
sunk deep in hope and a week's check. Lord, grant me relief, a place in the shade on fresh straw, a dirt road showered in honeysuckle, so I can meet you head on. Yes, dear Jesus, I pray, grant me gospel. You're listening to Millersville Matters today, and we have the pleasure of inviting a poet, Ken Vance, to read from his new book, Wearing Johnny's Shirt and Other Poems. That was the poem entitled Prayer. Uh, now, of course, Wearing Johnny's Shirt, isn't it's not all poetry. Um, <laughs> you include an essay contemplating the idea of home and recalling the memories and images of the people in places that raised you. Uh, I want to just quote you um, this last paragraph from that essay. My home was all of those things in a fixed picture frame. It was the part of my life I can never return to, nor will I ever find again. That thought both humbled and scared me. It still does. Is that one of the impulses that keeps you writing to distill those people the places and moments that have had such an impact on your life. Absolutely. Uh, I was raised, I was poor. I lived in a house till I was in the ninth grade with no indoor plumbing. Uh, we drew our water out of a well. The ladies in the house used what was called a slop jar, which my brother and I had to empty. Every morning, uh, the guys, we had a outhouse, really did. It was about, I don't know, 25 yards at the back of the backyard that we had to put lime in from time to time. And uh, I, I, I didn't know I was poor. My, my mama taught me I was a single parent up until I was about in the ninth grade. Taught me, you know, she said, always be neat. You may not have the best clothes, but you can be neat. You will make your bed every morning. You will wash the dishes. You'll take a bath. You know, we'll warm water. We had electricity in the house. We did have that. And we had a wood stove that kept us warm because the house was so damn holy. Uh, you had to stick, you know, gas heat or something like that just kind of flew out. But, but, but I, I I'm, proud of the way I was raised. I, I regret that, that a lot of folks today don't have the hard times that we had, and we didn't know they were hard. We just thought that's the way it was. You know, I, I tell people, you know, all this stuff about gun violence and everything else. I can remember taking my twenty two rifle to school on the bus with my little box of cartridges because I was going to go spend the night with Alan Cooper or somebody like that, and we was going to go squirrel hunting that evening. So you carried it on the bus, you went to school, you put it in the back of the room, you gave the teacher your shells, and nobody thought anything about it. Well, times change. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not so caught up in the past that I don't appreciate the, the, the present and, and what I see in the future, but I'm proud of the way I was raised. And I didn't think I was poor, but I remember when we moved into a house in Tifton, Georgia that had a shower and a bathtub and carpet, Lord have mercy. And it was that old ugly pea green color. I thought I was living in a mansion across the street from the Northside Baptist Church in Tifton, Georgia. That was a big deal for me. 
So I'm 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 humbled. I, I think that keeps you humbled, and 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 I'm I'm a big believer in hum, in humility. I I love when you were given that last response, and you called it a house so holy. And you take it out of the context <laughs> oh, wow. and think about it. Um, and I, I see that in your writing, um, this look to the past, a contrast with the future, an appreciation of both. And I, I want to read, ask you to read another one uh, that I think um, uh, does that very well. Could you read On the Old Osceola Highway? I was raised on a road called the Old Osceola Highway. In this poem, People that go to church regularly, they'll understand two songs. There's there's power in the blood, and, and we will get at the river. Those are two enormous hymns. But if there's an autobiographical poem in here, this is probably it. On the old Osceola Highway, there's power in the blood. Mornings mixed with sunshine and drizzle. Nothing new to the old Osceola Highway. A welcomed witness confines flies, gnats, and livestock odors. Men with fair, leather-like faces pause, see the sun with itchy palms. There's power in the blood, 40 acres to plow for dinner. Once a 5 a.m. ritual of hitching mules to a wooden iron turning plow begins these days at 6.30. Keys fit ignitions of massive Ferguson's John Deere's, all aluminum, iron, and rubber, made nimble by power steering, power takeoff, and 12 to 14-foot harrows. Strength inherited from leather reins appears in black diesel smoke, felt in vibrations knocking dew from a wet morning seat. We will gather at the river. Men baptized in day-long sweat draw strength from 18 forward gears and a ton and a half of peanuts to the acre. They know almanacs, the six o'clock news from Albany, Sunday sermon signs and fertilizer. Merry women named Effie Joe, LaRue, and Irene, who are man strong with short fingernails, who birth stout sons and big boned daughters. All are obedient, all are Baptist. They have put in a day when Angus bulls bellow in heat and pine trees stand shadowed. Lights die early after appetites. Days begun with man-made power rest with the Lord on the old Osceola Highway. And that was Ken Vance reading on the old Osceola Highway from his new book, Wearing Johnny's Shirt. Ken Vance is joining me today on Millingsville Matters. Now, we're coming closer to our time today, and uh, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, some fun things um, in the more recent future. Okay. Uh, now, of course, I'm Googling your name because I had to do some more background <laughs> and everything. Um, uh, one of the things that came up was the press release for uh, when you became the executive director at uh, Peace Officer Standards and Training. Yes. And, of course, um, it, it goes through your list of uh, professional accomplishments, and then it talks about you a little bit more as a person, and it mentions that you are a published poet uh, there. Uh, now, uh, getting the book in my hand right. and, and talking to some some people we know, um, I was telling them about inviting you in here to interview, and I heard a story about another interview uh, you've done very recently uh, with uh, Governor Brian Kemp. Is there any way I could get you to share that story? Uh, yes. Uh, Monday was a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was speaking with the governor 
then the governor-elect, now the governor. And we had a very good conversation, and I'll be retiring from Peace Officer Standards and Training probably somewhere around the 15th of March. I've served longer in that position than anybody else ever has, and I'm very, very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. The governor said, Ken, you know, you've got 40-plus years you know, in law enforcement and in your retirement, you know, why don't you retire? I said, good, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but it's something to think about. He said, well, think about it. Let me know. So uh, I'll be retiring and Carol will be proud because her list gets longer every day. And uh, well, we'll move forward. I'm not quitting work. I've got plenty to do. I still teach at Columbus State in the master's program down there and uh, four times a year. And and I'll do some consulting or whatever. Shoot, I may be a road deputy for somebody, you know, for a while because I kind of want something now where I don't have to supervise people. But, no, I'm fixing to be 65 years old, so it's about that time, I guess. Well, it's amazing. You snuck in some news on me when I thought that we were trying to focus on the arts today. Um, well, <laughs> not, not, during my interview with Governor Kemp and the transition team, he got the first book. And he actually asked me to read a poem uh, in my interview, which I thought was kind of weird. But but I read one anyway. It comes out of this book. And uh, he got the first book. He sure did. And and we talked about that on the phone for a while. He, he had read several poems in there, which I thought was pretty outstanding. And uh, he said, well, what do you think about when you're talking about this? And I, I told him. And uh, he said, Marty and I really liked it. I said, wow, that's pretty amazing. I, well, when you got put on the spot that way, I mean, what poem did you select for, for the governor? Oh, oh, that's a good one. Uh, I actually read When We Can't Find the Handle, mm-hmm. which as a governor, that probably happens a lot when you can't find the handle. So if you want me to read that one, I'll read that one. It's pretty short. Yeah, that's All right. right. When We Can't Find the Handle. On clear Saturday nights when the regulars gang up at Johnny's Juke Joint and Bar to laugh at each other's failures, one will get bent, get fed up with life, wife, or job, let the cur dog loose that's bearing its teeth in his blood and throw a roundhouse right that connects. We all come apart, eventually catch our finger in the door and lash out, explode like a drained beer bottle dropped on the highway, sling anything and cuss words and tears we get our bruised hands on, Tonight, they're witnesses, standing out front who understand this is a form of redemption. That was Ken Vance reading When We Can't Find the Handle from his new book, Wearing Johnny's Shirt. You're hearing Ken Vance read from and talk about his new book, Wearing Johnny's Shirt, on Millageville Matters. And that, of course, is the last poem that closes out yes, uh, Wearing Johnny's Shirt. And it's a pretty recent poem. It's, it's not, not that old. Not that old. Is there a poem that you want to write or, or you want to finish? Not the ones that, that come to you, but one that you are, are working toward. I'm trying to write a poem about winter. When the leaves fall down and you get to see what's in back of something. What's behind something? You get to see that old shed that you've never seen in the woods or that old car, truck, or liquor still, you know, whatever. I, I see a lot of people write about spring and summer and la, 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 and that's fine, and I do it too. But winter 
winter is really interesting to me because the leaves are down, the trees are dead, there's no really sap going anywhere at the time, and you get to see what's behind them. You get to see that pond down there that you've been riding down that road for years, and you've never seen it. And all of a sudden, there it is. It's there. It's that pond. And I, that's, that's, that's kind of where my focus is. I'm trying to write about winter right now. Well, uh, the last poem I want to ask you to read uh, for our program, I think is moving in that direction, or at least it mentions fall. Um, could you read this last fine fact? Oh, wow. The last fine fact is, is kind of like, folks, we all going to die. You know, some of them it, it happens to without any planning, and then some people, that they kind of know what's coming, and they're just trying to, to live out their time. So that's kind of where I started going on this. The last fine fact. This morning, as you finger the neat white buttons before someone with pale hands buttons them for you, think of those things that are automatic, like brushing your teeth or putting your Buick in drive. Then press on. Back through the first October leaf falling. Through the kiss you knew was real and settled things. Or the first time you sat heavy in church. Just as I am, you thought. Does God buy wholesale? Now go back to beginnings, to science. The bastard child of Genesis. The damned up river of the mind and everything starts to shake. Hair dryers and faucet water become larger, explained, believed, displaced from the magnetism of mystery. You stand, walk, and work in a world whose fulcrum is an off-and-on switch. Only at night does mystery return. Standing, say, on a flat road east of Jackson, trying to flag some salesman down. You're coming to a place where you can't tell History is a rug pulled out from under you. You recall overlooked facts. Martin Luther's problem with money. Patton's ability to recite poetry. Realize what we come to, we come to. Most want to go back, regroup, reclaim. Some don't. Watch them. They're our hope. Well, Ken Vance. Wow. I just want to thank you so much for coming in today and sharing the poetry from wearing Johnny's shirt uh, with our radio audience. Well, this has been a rock cathartic experience. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, uh, I appreciate you for holding the reservation open. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, boss. You got it. You've been listening to Millageville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, my guest Ken Vance talked about and read from his new book of prose and poems, Wearing Johnny's Shirt, which is out now from Thomas Max Publishing. Vance will give a reading of poems from Wearing Johnny's Shirt this Saturday, February 9th, at the Allen's Market in downtown Millageville. On behalf of WRGC, I've been your host, Daniel McDonald, and it's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Millageville Matters. And I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.